morning, church. Today we will be returning to the ninth chapter of Daniel to complete the uh, exposition of that chapter that we began last week, or that we that we have been in for a couple of weeks, actually. Um, today we're going to be looking most specifically at the 25th through the 27th verses of Daniel 9. Just in terms of uh, recap, we're going to kind of take a minute and, and remember what we discussed last week as that will be pertinent to our continued discussion of the chapter today. We learned last week that Gabriel had come in response to Daniel's prayer. Daniel was offering petition and he was uh, offering uh, confession on behalf of himself and of the people of Israel who had strayed from the commands of God, who had drifted from uh, the law of God and uh, had been guilty of all manner of disobedience and idolatry, things of that sort. And Daniel uh, had been reading the book of Jeremiah and had seen the 70 years prophesied in Jeremiah of this uh, Babylonian exile. And he knew that this was coming to an end, and he was praying the scriptures to God as he's petitioning uh, God on behalf of, the, of himself and the people. And uh, in the uh, response to that prayer, God sent Gabriel to give Daniel a, a vision of what would come following this 70 years of, of Babylonian captivity. And in so doing, Daniel um, told, uh, or was told by Gabriel that 70 weeks would be appointed to the people and the city of Jerusalem. And we've discussed last week how those prophetic weeks actually are 70 weeks of years. So the time frame in question that we're going to be looking into today is a time frame of 490 years. We discussed last week and pointed out that this 490 years would be equivalent to actually 10 jubilees. And as we looked at the advent of Christ as it related to these 490 years, we saw that Christ came in that 10th jubilee. In other words, to be the jubilee that ended all jubilees, the jubilee of jubilees. Today, we will see hopefully with more clarity how the 70th week was initiated at the beginning of Christ's ministry and how it represented, in fact, the jubilee to end all jubilees. Last week, as we examined verse 24, we noted that there were six things foretold in that verse to be brought about by these 70 weeks. We noted how uh, that these 70 weeks would finish the transgression of Israel. It would, it would result in the culmination of their denial of the Messiah and the crucifixion of Christ. We noted how Christ then would make an end of sin as a function of this last week that we're going to get into today. We noted how he would make reconciliation for iniquity or make atonement for the people. Uh, we also noted that uh, he would bring in an everlasting righteousness, that he would seal up vision and prophecy, and that he would be the most holy that was anointed. And we saw how only Christ could have been the, uh, the referent uh, in all six of these things. It's only Christ that does any of this. So we, we really sort of honed in on that reality last week. Well, today, we're going to continue to the end of the chapter, and hopefully we're going to more specifically break down the fulfillment of those 490 years. Before we look to verses 25 through 27, I want to take just a minute and issue a couple of preliminary warnings uh, regarding the dating of ancient events and the interpretation of prophetic literature. Okay? First of all, it is very important for us to note that ancient dating is inherently less precise than our modern timekeeping methods. 
Okay, and this is going to be difficult for some of us who like to pinpoint on the calendar and the timeline these dates. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, we, we note that, uh, you know, in, uh, in ancient literature, we see again and again that this event happened in the second year of King What's-His-Name following the battle of wherever it was, and this important event took place, right? And, and for the people living in that time, that method of, of dating was fine because they could remember living under the reign of King What's-His-Name, and they could remember their grandfather telling them about fighting in the battle of wherever it was, okay? They, they, could, they had that, that closeness, that proximity in history. But as the river of time continues to flow, the people's collective memory of King What's-His-Name and the battle of wherever it was begins to fade, Right? And eventually disputes arise about the precise dates and the actual chronology of events. Consider even in our frame of reference, uh, one of the major moments and major events in our lifetime was the attacks of 9-11. And we all know that that was in the year 2001. Okay? But if it were left to our collective memory, the collective memory of our society, to preserve these dates we would eventually sort of lose any concrete realization of when those things happen. We have a group of uh, sort of a generation of adults today coming into adulthood that were not even alive in 2001. Thankfully, though, the precision of our modern dating rests in the fact that years are not described in relation to events, but on the other hand, events are described with specific years. And we know that those specific years are derived from the appearance of Jesus Christ historically on the scene. So the fact that our modern dating is so much more accurate is attributed to the fact that we now mark our calendar in terms of the years of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Praise God that we live in the year 2022 A.D., we leave off the A.D. a lot of times, but that's the best part of the date, right? 2022 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, okay? So because of Jesus Christ, we have a modern dating system that is far superior to the ancient dating systems. And that's one thing that I think we need to, to recognize. That this is not to say, and, and just to be very clear, this is not to say that ancient peoples did not have calendars. They most certainly did. Uh, the Jews referred to two different calendars. They referred to a lunar calendar that was made up of 12 equal months of 30 days. And they also referred to a solar calendar. This lunar calendar was often used uh, to keep up with, with uh, feast days and holy days and that sort of thing, the, the religious calendar, if you will. And because it was only 360 days per year, every few years they had to add a month to realign their lunar calendar with the solar calendar, which is much more closely, it's 365 days, much more closely tied to the actual time it takes for the earth to orbit the sun which is 365 days, 5 hours, 19 minutes, and 16 seconds. That's for anybody who's really keeping close score at home there. Um, but they utilized this lunar calendar for those holy days, and, and there, there would inevitably be an added month from year to year, you know, occasionally throughout the years, to, to realign things. Now, this all might seem trivial, but it's going to be important as we begin to work through verses 25, particularly verse 25, um, to, uh, to understand... Um, how there's so many different opinions about how this, this period of 70 weeks works itself out. The second thing I want to caution us about is this. We need not overlook the obvious and simplest, um, most logical reading of prophetic literature. 
um, we would do well to remember the theory of Occam's razor. This is a principle of logic associated with the 14th century philosopher and theologian William of Occam. And to paraphrase, Occam said that the simplest approach is normally the correct approach. We want to use the, the simplest, most logical way of understanding things to have the correct understanding or interpretation. This means that there's no need to seek out or embrace complications when a simple solution is apparent. Regarding scripture, if there is no textual reason to import ideas into a passage, then we should leave those ideas out. We should allow the context and flow of the passage to indicate the interpretive framework. So this means that allowing scripture to interpret scripture needs to be our preferred hermeneutical method, that is to say, our preferred method of interpretation. To me, this, this is common sense. It just stands to reason that inspired authors are going to be the best equipped to interpret other inspired authors. We know that from Genesis to Revelation, there's really one primary author of Scripture, and that's God. So when God explains himself to us, when we compare Scripture to Scripture, that's what we're doing. We're allowing God to explain himself to us. We can be very confident then that we have the accurate interpretation. So... What we will do as we work through this passage is allow, first of all, the light of the New Testament to shine onto the Old Testament, to illuminate our understanding of Old Testament. At the same time, we're going to acknowledge the use of language from the Old Testament is the manner in which the apostles in Christ would have thought and spoke and communicated. So all of this sort of comes into play as we're working through this passage to try to achieve a clear and biblical interpretation. Okay, uh, I think that's what I want to say in terms of, of, of an introduction. Let's pray. We're not going to read the whole passage at once. We're going to take it bit by bit. Um, this could um, potentially be a lengthy sermon, and I'm trying to keep it as, as short as we possibly can. There's a lot to cover here, a lot to delve into. Let's seek God's guidance as we do this. Father in heaven, again, we come to you um, just expressing gratitude for the incredible gift of your word. You have spoken to us, God. You, you are a God who speaks. And Lord, when you speak, your people need to listen. And it's our prayer today, God, that you will give us clarity of thought, that you will guard me from error, that I will decrease as you increase. And as your word is proclaimed, God, may we all be taught by you. And may you lead us into the truth because you are the author of all truth. You're the source of all truth. Uh, you are the, uh, you've given us scripture, which is the norm that norms all norms. And we turn to that. We lean on that, Father, as your inspired word. We ask you, God, just to bless our time together. Uh, Lord, edify your body as we seek to glorify you. And this is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so having established last week that the period of time in verse 24 revealed by Gabriel to Daniel as 70 weeks is rightly considered 490 years. Let's start to look at how those 490 years are delineated. Let's begin today in chapter 9 of Daniel, verse 25. Again, I will uh, use uh, the, the King James Version as a primary text, and I will also reference other versions uh, for simplicity. Um, I like the rendering of the King James of these three verses. So, beginning in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. 
So in 25, we can see pretty readily that there are 69 weeks in view uh, in, in verse 25. Now, for technical reasons, some translators, including the translators of the ESV, try to put a stop after those first seven weeks and end a sentence right there. If you're looking at, a, at, a, at an ESV, uh, you might notice that. And that really clouds the issue of when Messiah is to come. This is one of the reasons that I prefer the King James in this case, but because the King James makes it clear that the seven weeks followed by the 62 weeks is the time frame that, that the Messiah will come. I think this is an unfortunate error sometimes in translations to put a period after that seven weeks. Uh, there's nothing in the original writing that would demand this rendering, so the correct reading should be that there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Together, these 69 weeks will precede the coming of Messiah. We'll see in verses 26 and 27 that they provide additional detail and explanation of the 70th week. But for right now, let's just concern ourselves with those first 69 weeks. As we read verse 25, there's a couple of questions that arrive. Okay, If this is a description of 69 weeks, and we believe it is, then why are the first seven weeks distinguished from the following 62 weeks? Why not simply state 69 as the total number? And I think there's two reasons for this. Um, as I've studied this out this week, um, it's become apparent that there's two primary reasons. One, a symbolic reason, and two, a historical reason for distinguishing the seven weeks from the 62. First, <clears throat> symbolically speaking, the principle of seven that we established last week is key to our understanding the greater significance of the 70-week period. Okay, we remember last week that we examined God's symbolic use of the number seven. We talked about creation and how creation occurred over the course of seven days, six days of work and then a Sabbath rest on the seventh day. This established for us the Sabbath principle, the day of rest principle. We then looked at how uh, Shemitah cycles, these are weeks of seven years, expand that Sabbath principle to these seven-year cycles. And then eventually, once you have seven of the Shemitah cycles, seven sevens of years, you arrive at 49 weeks, which is concluded with a year of Jubilee, which we've already talked about. Furthermore, we looked at the significance of rest as a function of our redemption. So this Sabbath principle was not merely a practical good idea for people to rest from their labors. This was crucial in understanding God's work of redemption. The requirement of everyone for salvation is simply to rest in the completed work of Christ. That is the, that is the fundamental requirement of our salvation. And we saw how seriously God took the, the breaking of the Sabbath because it was not just a breaking of a calendar ordinance. It was the breaking of his pattern that would demonstrate the, the rest that is received by those who are, are granted eternal life. Secondly, <clears throat> we see historically that these first seven weeks are distinguished by the events of rebuilding the temple and of Jerusalem. Now, this gets a little bit more complicated, but as we work through this, it's going to be clear to us to see that those first seven weeks, those 49 weeks, represent roughly 50 years of time. And that particular 50 years of time seems to work, not perfectly, but at least um, most clearly, between the years of 457 and 507 B.C. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. These are the years described in Ezra and Nehemiah. And particularly, it's notable that these were definitely years of difficulty that they faced in rebuilding the temple and the walls of the city. 
So as we follow this description of how these 490 years unfold, it becomes evident that we need to have a time frame, sort of a timeline to understand what the prophecy is speaking about and how it was fulfilled. And that's what I'd like to get into a little bit right now. This is a difficult thing to follow, so I'm going to ask you to just kind of buckle up take a lot of notes. I'm going to throw some scripture references at you that we're not going to look up that I want you to go read on your own for the sake of time. But we're going to try to identify the most logical and best place to begin counting these 490 years that were prophesied to Daniel or that were demonstrated to Daniel by Gabriel. The, the four dates that are most commonly applied to this would be 586 B.C., 537 BC, 457 slash 458 BC, and 444, 445 BC. Now, I know all of those dates just immediately ring in your mind. You know the events that surround those dates, right? Well, no, I, I don't either. Um, I've got them written down here. I, I couldn't remember everything. But th these four dates are the most common candidates used to apply the 490 years in history. Okay, so we, we see in verse uh, 25, the, the very first statement is that know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at places, points in time in Jewish history in which there was a command to go forth and rebuild, to, to resurrect, if you will, Jerusalem. And we see these dates as possible candidates. I want to take each one of these and sort of lay out the pros and cons of this. I, I want you to make your own decision on this. I'll share with you the, the conclusions that I've come to in studying this. But I want you to think through this for yourself and read these passages. Okay, 586. This is the earliest date commonly proposed. I, I guess 605 is also a date that's thrown out. But, but most commonly 586. And this date is based on God's promise through the prophet Jeremiah that he would return Israel to their land. So some people say, see, 586, this is the command to go back into the land, okay? And, and this is spelled out in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, and Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Now, from my perspective, the likelihood that this would be the proper place to begin calculating the 490 years is very slim. The application of 70 Shemitah cycles to this date doesn't work very well with the seven-year, 62-year, one-year breakdown of Daniel 9. Nor does it culminate with any meaningful identification of the anointed one that we're going to get to later in this passage. Um, so this date is often called the Jewish view. Because in, in applying this date to the beginning of that 490-year sequence, what, what they actually do is try to disconnect Jesus Christ from this prophecy in any way. That they, the, the, the Jews, of course, would not want to see this 490-year prophecy of Daniel conclude with the historic person of Jesus Christ because they have rejected him. So in many ways, this 586 date is an attempt to establish these 490 years in such a way that Jesus Christ is completely left out of the equation. That they would, they would rather seek to, to fill the points, fill in the blanks in this, in this prophecy with the events that took place during the intertestamental writings or the Apocrypha. Okay, 537 B.C. is the next year that is often used. Uh, it was at this point that we read in Ezra 1 that Cyrus's command went to Ezra, predicted by Isaiah, for Israel to return from exile. 
This date also presents a lot of difficulties in, in the fact that it's simply too early to culminate with any meaningful um, arrival of the Anointed One, of the Messiah. So also, it doesn't really align with historical events very well to, to sort of make sense. But this is, a, this is a date that some people would use and sort of twist to fit their, their dating scheme. The year 444 B.C. is another one. This one is very, very popular, very common. Um, this would be the year that Artaxerxes commanded Nehemiah to rebuild the city of God. This was a restatement of the Ezra command. And, and we read about this in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 6. Look that up and read that. Um, despite the fact that this is a very popular date, um, it, it has a lot of issues, and it's got a lot of complications. Remember, one of the principles of interpreting prophetic literature is to not introduce any more complexities than are necessary. And this is complex enough without adding more complexity to this. That's what the date 444 does for us, though. It, it becomes very complicated in making it work. Let me see if I can explain it in a way that's simple and short. Um, you'll notice that if you advance 483 years, that's the, that's the number of years in those 69 weeks that, that are in question. If you advance 483 years from 444 B.C., you deduct a year because there is no year zero in the timeline, um, you, you arrive at the year 38 A.D., now, that, that's problematic because this is well past the historically accepted time frame of Christ. But because the people who hold to the 444 B.C. date are so committed to that, they like to do some magic to make the, uh, to make the, the numbers work out. So what they do is they will actually appeal to the lunar calendar to establish this time frame. That's why I mentioned that earlier. What they will say is, well, if you consider the possibility that this was spoken of in terms of lunar years, they, they would call them prophetic years, what you end up with with 69 weeks of lunar years is a total of 173,880 days. Okay, you can check my math on that a little bit later. I, I, I ran those numbers several times, uh, started to send them to Ryan. He, he crunches numbers for a living, um, decided to spare him that this week. But that, that's the number of days that we would find in, in seven, or sorry, 69 weeks of lunar years. Okay? If you take those and convert them then back into solar years, you arrive at a number of 476 that needs to be added to the date 444. Again, deducting zero from the timeline, you land on the year 31 AD. Okay, and, and, and they argue, those who hold this perspective, that that 31 is well within the accepted time frame of Christ's life and period of ministry that would have, would have given him a, a possible time for his execution. So on this basis, they claim that their starting point of 444 is correct. The problem is that's, that, to me, takes a lot of twisting and a lot of special pleading to make that work. Um, in fact, most of the, of the people who adopt this view are going to be the ones who seek to disconnect the 70th week from these 69 weeks and cast it way off into the future. In other words, there is a theory that says the 70th week of Daniel is still to come. We have not experienced that yet. And we're going to speak more about the theological system that demands this a little bit later today. But this is one view. This is the view of, of starting at 444-445 B.C. The view that I prefer that seems to be uh, the simplest, most direct, most consistent application of Scripture is the view that these 490 years are to begin at the year 457 B.C.'s, uh, 457 B.C. with Artaxerxes' command to Ezra. 
This is uh, going to be taken from Ezra 7, and I do want you to turn there. I want you to look at this one, and I want us to read through this command of Artaxerxes as we examine why we think it's very likely that 457 B.C. is the proper time to begin count, the countdown to Messiah. That's what we'll call the 490 years, countdown to Messiah. Ezra 7, beginning in verse 11. Ezra 7, beginning in verse 11, we read, This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. Peace. And now, this is Artaxerxes speaking, verse 13, I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priest or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. He goes on in this chapter to specify how offerings and funding are to be given for the restoration of the temple and of the city. This actually seems to correspond very well with the prophecy of Haggai where God said that he would shake the nations so that their treasure would come in to be used for the finishing of his temple. We see that that prophesied in Haggai. Well, continuing in verse 25 of Ezra 7, we read, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the providence, in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Now, this might seem a little odd to be reading all of this, but let me, let me explain what this is demonstrating. Here we see not only a decree to build, not only the, the giving of treasure and, and funds for the project, but we also see a command to appoint judges and magistrates, to appoint leaders. You can't have a city without leaders. You can't have any type of civilization without some type of leadership and government. We also see that the power to judge and rule is being established, not based based on the law of Artaxerxes, but based on the law of God. So for these reasons and many others, I think it's, it's, very, um, it's very clear to us. I shouldn't say very clear. Nothing in this, in this chapter is very clear. But it's, it's the simplest and best way to understand this, that the year 457-458, whichever date you hold there, there's technical reasons for why it could be one or the other. But this seems to be the most appropriate application of the 490 years. We should also consider back in Ezra 6. Turn there real quick. Ezra 6. We should consider the way that Ezra seems to acknowledge the decrees of the, of the kings who have told the people to return and rebuild the city. Ezra 6.14 reads, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So in this passage, Ezra seems to consider all of these decrees to be part of the general command that God had given to return to the land and rebuild the holy city. In so doing, we note that he attributes to God the ultimate authority, uh, the ultimate authority to bring about all of these decrees. 
So regardless of the, of the human institution in place, the command is going forth from God. And I think that's an important thing for us to acknowledge as we work through this. Okay, that probably left more confusion than, than anything else. But what, what I hope that you'll take from this is that there are, there are several possible ways of understanding how we apply the 490 weeks. And for the believing uh, for, for the believer, the simplest thing for us to do is to look at the birth of Christ back up 483 years or, or look at the, the ministry of Christ back up 483 years and say, hey, what's, what's going on in this time frame? Does this make sense? For those reasons, 457 seems to be, uh, to, at least to me, the best candidate for these dates. Now, continuing with our discussion of 26, verse 26 and verse 27, um, before we get into these, I think it's important to note um, a couple of things ab- about these verses. First, we need to notice the, that the thematic content of the verses is a very common theme throughout Scripture, particularly throughout prophetic Scripture. And then we also need to note the structural parallels of the verses. Now, the two themes that I want us to note again and again throughout prophetic literature is that it tends to always speak regarding the coming of the Lord. There's going to be themes of judgment and wrath, and there's going to be themes of redemption and forgiveness. Judgment, redemption. Wrath, forgiveness. Okay? In fact, we could sum up much of the Old Testament prophetic writing in these two promises. There will be wrath for those who are found in violation of God's law. There will be mercy and forgiveness and redemption for those who repent. That's an ongoing theme within prophetic literature, and of course we see that throughout Scripture as well. Both of these themes then are found in the last two verses of Daniel 9, but in order to see clearly how that works out, it's important that we recognize the structural parallels of these two verses. Okay? In Hebrew literature, especially in poetry, but also in, in, in prose literature like what we're looking at here, it's not uncommon for ideas to be set in parallel and not to read in a sequential way, the way that we would in, in, a, in a Western sort of logical approach to writing. And, and I, I think that we can, we can demonstrate this in these two verses. Um, rather than reading them as though, they're re- as, as though they're written just thought after thought after thought after thought, all building on itself, we need to understand that there are, uh, there are two parallels of ideas that are presented. I'm going to try to do this by reordering the verses 26 and 27 to reflect that in the reading. And let me follow me on this now. I want you to see how I've done this. If you've got a, um, if you've got a smartphone with a KJV or if you have a KJV, this is going to make the most sense to you. But it's really important that we see these parallels. There's going to be 26A that is paralleled by 27A. So the first phrase or statement of 26 goes with the first phrase or statement of 27. After that, the remainder of 26 is followed by the remainder of 27. So we get parallel ideas that are present here in this writing. And Jewish people, as they read this, would have have seen that and recognized that immediately. Because we think in Western terms of logical sequence, we don't always see these kind of parallels uh, unless they're spelled out for us. So let's try and do that. Let's begin in 26A. We'll jump to 27A. Then we'll go 26B, 27B. Follow me in this. 26A. And after three score and two weeks, this is 62 weeks, right? Three score and two weeks, that's our 62 weeks. And after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off 
but not for himself. Jump to 27a. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Jump back to 26b. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. 27b is a continuation of this thought. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now, the first thing that we want to assert here as we look at these two verses is that the main character does not change. In the same way that we established last week that all six objectives in verse 24 described there, they were, they were fulfilled by Christ, we also have to say with confidence that Jesus Christ is the one accomplishing both the redemption in the first parallel and the judgment in the second parallel. 26a, 26b, redemption. 20, sorry, 26a, 27a, redemption. 27a, 27, 26b, 27b, judgment. I've messed that up twice. But it's, it's important enough for me to fix it because I want you to get this. I'm going to say it correctly. 26a, 27a is the redemption. 26b, 27b is the judgment. And we see those parallel thoughts contained in this passage. Okay? 26a points to the fact that the Messiah who arrived following the 69 weeks was cut off. This language of being cut off is obviously connected to the words of the prophet Isaiah. We probably know this from memory, Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due. This idea in scripture of being cut off signifies a very violent death. We also see in 53, as Isaiah 53, as well as Daniel 9, that this being cut off was not for himself. Notice, cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due. The cutting off was due to those who had sinned against a holy God, not against the Messiah. But in fact, he embraced that punishment on their behalf. This is a clear Old Testament proclamation of our doctrine of imputation. Remember, our salvation rests in the fact that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as our guilt was imputed to him at Calvary. Again, referencing Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. Probably not a bad idea to turn there. We're going to look at several verses. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, uh, we read, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. So again, if, if, we, if we want to establish um, to, to someone who might not believe the New Testament is, is inspired or somehow maybe a Jewish person that only holds to the Old Testament, we can see the doctrine of imputation absolutely explicitly laid out in this 53rd chapter of Isaiah. All right, now turn your attention to the second part of this parallel from verse 27a. Notice, as a result of being cut off, 
27a tells us, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So, who is this many, and what is this covenant that Daniel is speaking of? There are two cross-references, I think, that add great clarity to this. I want you to keep your finger in Isaiah 53. Do that for me right now. Hold on to Isaiah 53, and then also turn to Matthew 26. Isaiah 53, Matthew 26. I want you to see this laid out as we understand the many and the covenants spoken of by Daniel. We're going to begin in Isaiah 53. Look to verse 11. Okay, this is the many. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we see several places in these verses that the expected Messiah, the suffering servant, if you will, would extend righteousness to the many. And the way he does that is through the new covenant that Daniel is actually alluding to here. Turn to Matthew 26. Let's look at the, at the new covenant. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 27. Matthew 26, 27. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out again for the many for forgiveness of sin. So the covenant with the many is a very important concept established here in Daniel 9 as it's making reference to the one who was cut off. Okay, this is, this is why it's so important for us to read these parallels that are laid out in Daniel 9. While it is certainly true that the vast majority of Jewish people collectively killed and rejected their Messiah, it is also true that he instituted a new covenant with many of them. Remember, the Jewish people were under the Old Covenant. This is a New Covenant. The early church was almost entirely Jewish. At one point, Christianity was known simply as the Way, and it was thought of as just merely a sect of Judaism by Gentiles. Right? Even after the death of Christ, the earliest gospel endeavors were overwhelmingly aimed at the house of Israel. Some say for the first three and a half years of, of the gospel proclamation, the target audience were the Jewish people. Even though they had killed the Messiah, God was still gracious in granting to them the gospel through the apostles. Okay? Um, so much so was this, this Jewish nature of the early church that when the Gentiles finally did begin to come in, the very first church council that was held was to deal with the issue of circumcision. Because the assumption was by these believing Pharisees that somehow those Old Testament constructs would need to be continued. And James helped us to see at that council uh, that, that this was not the case. That those shadows and types were passing away. The book of Hebrews speaks to this at length. Um, so, with these cross-references in mind, what I hope that we can see is during this 70th week uh, that was asserted by Isaiah, repeated in Daniel and then clearly confirmed by Jesus Christ himself that, that he would be the, the, the sacrifice, that there would be a covenant with the many, those who would believe. 
This is what Daniel 9.24 really is talking about when it says that Jesus sealed up vision and prophecy. Okay, we're pointing back to these Old Testament prophecies and demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment in every case. Okay, quickly turn to the second set of parallel statements at the end of Daniel 9. I want to begin in verse 26b, Daniel 9, 26b. I know there's a lot of jumping around, a lot to process here, and I appreciate your patience as we work through this. Daniel 9, verse 26b. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Skip to verse 27b. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, this parallel is the one that establishes the wrath and the judgment motif that's always present in prophetic language. Remember now, how many characters do we find in this passage? There's one main character. We're not, there's, there's no linguistic reason to bring in additional characters. We're talking about Jesus Christ. Because we're given no linguistic evidence that there's a new person, there's no need for us to add a new person at this point. This means that the people of the prince are actually the Jews. Because the prince that is to come has been Jesus throughout this chapter, there's no indication that we're talking about anyone else. This tells us then that the Jews themselves were held responsible by God for bringing upon themselves this desolation. And this is not a new concept. Okay, uh, Daniel even prays in, in, in the 18th verse of this chapter, O oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. So these desolations that the Jews were experiencing were a result of their own sin for which Daniel was confessing earlier in his prayer to God. Other places in Scripture also give us evidence of how God holds the children of Israel responsible for the punishment he is bringing at their hands by, by uh, pagan people, right, at the hands of pagan peoples. Um, we won't turn there, but we can all recall the anger of God being poured out via the wickedness of the Assyrians in the book of Isaiah. We remember that. Um, so so this is, I think this is a very important concept for us to, to recognize, and, and we can even apply it to situations today. When a, when a person is judged by God and we allow them to become the victim, they miss the purpose and the benefit of the correction of God. So with the Jews in this case, they were the ones who had broke the ordinances of God. They were the ones who had defied the law of God. They were the ones who had ignored the Sabbath principle. They were the ones who were not living their lives in obedience to the revealed will and purpose of God. And all of the things that came upon them were their own doing. So when we see the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, when we see these, these awful things that were poured out upon the Jews, the people who brought that about were in fact the Jews. They were not victims. They were absolutely responsible for these desolations. And that's the point that I, uh, that I want us to take from this. Continuing in 27b, we see that he, again, this is Jesus, will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And we referenced this last week, but it's very important to note that when Jesus Christ was on the cross and he said, it is finished, when he cried out, it is finished, at that point, there was not another single sacrifice 
ever accepted by God. Okay? And if you hold to an eschatological view that anticipates a rebuilt temple and the continuing of sacrifices, you need to repent of that. Um, There should be nothing in our minds more abhorrent than the idea that sacrifices, animal sacrifices, would be made rather than trusting in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is, a, that is a horrible, horrible idea that somehow the, the return of animal sacrifices would be a good thing. Um, it, it's, a, it's a terrible thing, and, and nothing should be more revolting to us than to see the rejection of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ in favor of the types and shadows that pointed to Christ. There's one other passage that I want us to go to as we're considering these desolations, this abomination of desolations. I want us to turn um, to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, as we kind of put the, the, final, um, the final bow, if you will, on, on this passage. In Matthew 23, after pronouncing eight woes upon the Pharisees, um, very condemning language, noting their stubbornness toward the prophets, the fact that they had killed the prophets even. Um, Matthew 23, verse 37 reads, in the words of Jesus Christ, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Jesus Christ himself affirmed the desolation of what was being done by the Jews. So beginning with the rejection of their sacrifices and continuing to the consummation of their desolation, which is when the city of Jerusalem was besieged and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., all of this happened just as Jesus had predicted. If you look to chapter 24, the the next verses, we see that Jesus is making a startling prediction that not one stone of the temple would be left on another. His disciples were clearly concerned about this prediction, and they wanted to understand when these things might happen. In what is known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus tells them that when they see the abomination of desolations described in Daniel. This is one of the most compelling time frame references that gives us an understanding of how and when these events of the 70th week of Daniel are to play out by the words of Jesus Christ. Many people read Matthew 24 as a warning about the end of the world. I would invite you, please, go home today and read Matthew 24 and ask yourself, based on the clearest reading of the passage, is there any way that passage was not directed at those people Jesus was talking to? I don't think there's any way to twist that. Uh, I think that the, this abomination of desolations was clearly spoken of as Jesus Christ as a present reality to those who he was speaking to in that time and in in that region. So, having attempted to lay out these three verses um, in the simplest, most scripturally faithful way, we've worked really hard to avoid reading anything into the text. Um, as I've dug deeply as I can into the biblical languages, and, and when my ability is so limited in those areas, I've leaned on other men to, to help establish what the, the Scripture is actually speaking of here. Um, I've done my best today to let the text speak to you. Um, I, I don't want anything to ever be proclaimed out of my mouth on my authority. I, I want the Word of God to speak to us about all of these things. But we can't leave this passage today without addressing sort of the elephant in the room, 
And, and that is the fact that we have all very likely grown up under a type of eschatology in times teaching that utilizes Daniel 9 in a very different way than we looked at it today. Okay, and, and that's, uh, that's an unfortunate thing. Let me say this, that for, for people who have differing views on eschatology, this is not a test of your Christian orthodoxy. There are believers, there are, there are genuine, true men of God who love the Lord, who proclaim his word faithfully, who are trusting in him, who are, are better scholars than I, that come to very different conclusions about this. This is called dispensational eschatology, and it demands a radical severing of the church in Israel on the basis that the book of Daniel, 70th week, is to be separated and shoved off into the future. This completely changes the identity of the passage. It completely changes the message of the passage. Let me ask you a couple of questions um, regarding this, this uh, system of, of futuristic eschatology. Think back to verse 24, the six things that were to be accomplished in the 70 weeks. Is there anything in that verse that would indicate or demand a 2,000-year gap in history where the first 69 weeks play out and then we shove the 70th week off into some undetermined future time? I don't think so. If no one ever told you that you had to see a rapture, a future tribulation, an antichrist in the 70th week of Daniel, would you be able to find it there? Could you find it simply by reading the text and cross-referencing um, the, the, the verses that Daniel is referring to and the words of Christ as he refers back to the book of Daniel? I don't think we could find those things if, we were not, if they were not imported from external sources. Also, since this system of eschatology, this futuristic eschatology, did not exist until the 19th century, are we to believe that the church had no ability to understand Daniel 9 or the book of Revelation until John Nelson Darby, that was the, the author of a lot of this theology, published his thinking in C.I. Schofield's reference Bible? This is all 19th century ideas. That would mean that, that for some 18 centuries, the church was completely ignorant of the teaching of God's word in Daniel. So as followers of Christ, uh, I, I want to encourage us. We are not to be scanning the horizon in search of some antichrist figure or trying to interpret the Bible in light of the newspaper headlines. We are to keep our eyes fixed firmly on the author and finisher of our faith. That's where our faith is. That's where our eyes should be at all times. Now, I know that my particular brand of eschatology won't ever produce any movies, and it won't sell many books. That's just a fact. It's a fairly boring eschatology compared to the fantastic um, futuristic eschatology of Tim LaHaye, David Jeremiah, and, and, and folks like that. Um, but that's not my concern. I don't want to get distracted by these end-time fables of men. Rather, let us hold fast to the truth of God's Word. Let us remain committed to living our lives with a kingdom agenda. Let us remember that we are part of that mountain in Daniel 2 that is growing from the stone, cut by no human hands, and that it's turning into a mountain that's going to fill the earth. Let us never forget that we have a commission from the one to whom God has given all authority on heaven and on earth. And it's on the basis of that authority that we are to go with the plain and simple gospel and Christianize the nations. Above all, let us remain faithful to the one who has saved us. Let us live out the victory that he has won. We are currently living in the perfect accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Let that be our guiding thought as we, as we read scripture and as we seek to live our lives for his glory. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we've concluded a difficult passage of scripture this morning. And God, I pray that you would give all of us a, uh, a sense of humility as we stand before your word and, and seek to learn and understand uh, what you have laid out for us through inspired authors. God, we trust in the inerrancy of your word. We trust, Lord, in the, in the perfection of your character as you have revealed yourself to us. God, we ask that, that all of the, the information that was conveyed today through the sermon be helpful and useful to people as they seek to live their lives in light of the victory that Christ has won, in, in light of the accomplishment of Christ's salvation on our behalf. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. <clears throat> 